Who is the Holy Spirit? We've sung about him a little bit this morning. You've heard him mentioned here and there already. Some of you might ask, what is the Holy Spirit? Why does he matter? Is he the one that makes people speak in different languages or or fall out in the aisles? Or is he the one who whispers quietly in your ear about what you should do or what you should choose? Some of us are afraid that he's the one who will make us act crazy if we give ourselves fully to him. Some of us ignore him completely. Romans 8 is a chapter that allows for neither of these. Though we try by cherry-picking just a few of the verses that are very quotable. And that make us feel good. By doing so, though, we ignore the one who actually makes those verses mean anything. That gives power to those promises. So today I want us to look at chapter 8 not through our usual lens of where's the promise and what's the application. Though we will certainly see those, Lord willing. But I want today to focus on what Paul actually emphasizes in this chapter. The work of the Holy Spirit. Before we get there, though, let's review. So last week we talked about Romans 7. We started off by talking about being wed to the wrong guy. We were wed to the law by birth. We were born under the law. And there's no getting out from under the law. There's no divorcing the law. The only way out is through death. Praise be to God, we died in Christ when he died. And so we've been delivered from that law. And we have now been wed to Christ. The law is holy, righteous, and good. We saw last week as well. But sin is so sinful that it exploited what was good, the law, to produce sin and death in us. Then I briefly mentioned, didn't even describe them really, uh, four different views about how we understand 7 through the end of the chapter, 25, of who is the I that Paul is talking about there. Is he talking about himself before he became a Christian, after he became a Christian? Is he talking about Israel? Is he talking about Adam? What's going on there? I described a little bit about the rhetorical device of impersonation and how some believe, and I'm leaning that way more and more now, that what Paul is doing there is using a rhetorical device to describe Adam's experience in 7 through 13 and then everyone who is under Adam in 14 through 25. The point, though, is the same. In the fight for righteousness, it will not be won through the flesh. The flesh cannot be righteous. It is unable to obey the law because we were sold under sin. We need to be delivered from the law, which Christ did by dying to the law in our place. So then what? Well, I probably left a couple of dangling participles last week in your minds, probably, and and I'm not going to address nearly all of those. But chapter 8, we'll we'll address some of those, hopefully, Lord willing, we'll, we'll, we'll answer some of those questions that you may have had. But one of them that came to my mind was, how are you sanctified? How are we sanctified? Now, notice, as I was reading the commentary, it was very helpful that he pointed this out, that the Spirit is not mentioned in verses 7 through 25 of chapter 7. Now, you could probably find some other chapters in the Bible where the Spirit's not mentioned at all. So why does it matter that for 7 to 25, those 18 verses, the Spirit's not mentioned? Pay attention to chapter 8. And see if that answers some of those questions. I really believe that chapter 8 furthers the evidence that Paul is, in fact, using the rhetorical device in that, in that portion. That he is imitating Adam and then those in Adam. So buckle up. <clears throat> we got four points today and a summary. Uh, Lord willing, we'll get to them. But here are my four points if you want to follow along. By the Spirit, 
we have freedom. By the Spirit, we have sanctification. By the Spirit, we have adoption. By the Spirit, we groan. And then in summary, by the Spirit, we persevere. Freedom, sanctification, adoption, groaning, perseverance. Those are my four points in summarizing point. Sneak an extra one in there without calling it five. All right. So, hopefully we'll see those as we go this morning. Let's stand together uh, for the reading of God's Word. It's found on page 887 in that Black Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have one, uh, feel free to use that to follow along. I will read the whole chapter, so if you're able to stand, please do so. If not, it is a longer chapter. It is okay. But I do intend to read the whole chapter uh, to us uh, while we're standing. If you don't have a Bible of your own, there are some blue ones in the back there on the, on the table in the foyer. Please feel free to take one of those as our gift to you today. Uh, we want you to have a copy of God's Word so that you can read His very great and precious promises for yourself as well. This is the Word of the Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we ought to to pray for as we ought, 
But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Oh, what a chapter. What a chapter. So much good stuff in there. I don't know. We'll... We'll do what we can in the limited time that we have today. It's so good. Please read it again uh, this week. Uh, I, ho- I hope you were able to do that some this last week, maybe reading uh, 5, 6, 7, and 8, or, or some combination of those. If you start getting into 9, you'll see how those are connected. Uh, Paul does do a similar thing at the end of chapter 8 and connecting it with chapter 9, as he did with 7 and 8. So be on the lookout for that. Let's go to point 1. <clears throat> By the Spirit, we have freedom. There is No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus has delivered us from the body of death and is delivering us, as we will see. The law no longer has the power to condemn those who are in Christ because he took our condemnation upon himself. There is no punishment left for you in Christ. Now, there is discipline, right? God does judge us with discipline, but 1 Corinthians 11.32 helps us understand that. It says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. We are no longer under condemnation, as verse 1 so gloriously tells us. To be condemned is to have the guilty verdict pronounced. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, what is earned by sin, is death. That is the condemnation that we deserve. But here we see in 8.1, there is no condemnation. No guilty verdict for you. It was paid by another, Christ himself. Notice, though, that you must be in Christ in order to not be condemned. So last week I saw a survey that was completed last year, just published recently, that studied excuse me, 18 to 55-year-olds, but specifically 18 to 39-year-olds. That's, that's a few of us. I say us. I can't say us anymore. That's a few of you. (laughs) 18 to 39-year-olds, 60% who call themselves born-again Christians don't believe that Jesus 
is the only way to be reconciled to God. 60%. Over 30% in that group said that Jesus sinned like other people or weren't sure whether he did or not. Those holding a biblical worldview, which was already less than half in 2010, in 10 years, from 2010 to 2020, that number's dropped in half. Biblical worldview being that the Bible is true, that it's God's word, that Jesus is God, that man has sinned, those basic biblical worldview questions, less than 20% now, hold to a biblical worldview, 25, somewhere around there, of folks in that age group. We cannot assume that we are all on the same page when we come to the scriptures. We can't assume that we all understand it the same way. We need to be studying, learning, speaking of, and asking questions with each other about the gospel. We need to continually be coming back to it and reminding ourselves because it is easy to forget. And it is easy to be persuaded by our culture around us that this is not true. There's part of us in our flesh that doesn't want this to be true. Because of the implications that it has for us and those that we love. But friends, it is true. And the only way to not be condemned for your sin is to be in Christ. Who did not sin? but lived a perfect life in order to be a perfect sacrifice for our sin. That is the gospel. Romans makes clear that we have all sinned, that we've all rebelled. Everybody on the planet in all time and all history has sinned and, and fallen short of the glory of God, that they've rebelled against their loving creator who deserves honor and thanksgiving, and yet we've rejected him. But the rest, and so we have earned, all of us have earned the condemnation and death that we deserve. But the rest of 6.23 that I quoted a minute ago says the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no other way to escape. There's no other salvation. There's no other way to get to heaven. There's no other way to be reconciled to God. Only through His Son, Jesus Christ, may we be reconciled to God. If you have never turned from your sin and turned to God and sought His forgiveness and asked Him to save you, See one of us after the service. See, see the person that you came with, if you came with someone today, and ask them, what does it mean? What does it look like to do this? God may be calling you to himself today to repent of your sin and to turn to him, to be put in Christ so that you will not have to face condemnation by yourself. Verses 2 through 4 show us how this is possible. The law is spiritual, 7.14. I didn't really emphasize that much last week, but it says in 7.14 that the law is spiritual, but we are of the flesh. We cannot keep a spiritual law in the flesh, but he fulfilled the law himself in Jesus. God did that. He did what the law could not do because it was weakened by the flesh in verse 3. But he did it by fulfilling the law himself. The Spirit of God applies this salvation to your life and you are now free, free from condemnation. How is the law's righteous requirement fulfilled in us, though? Whose sin has been atoned for by the sacrifice of Jesus for his people. It is a gift that does produce fruit. It is fulfilled in those who walk according to the Spirit. You see that in verse 4. The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is how we can uphold the law. If you remember all the way back in chapter 3, verse 31, 
Paul in arguing about what, what do we do with the law. No, in Christ, we don't disregard the law. We actually uphold the law. We see this word again in uh, chapter 4, verse 14. I'm sorry, I jumped ahead of myself. Let me note this first. The way that we are, are able to uphold the law is right here at the end of verse 4. It is by walking according to the Spirit. See, the end of verse 4 is the first time of 20 times that Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit in chapter 8 alone. That should stand out in our minds after going for 18 verses without mentioning the Spirit and the way he's talking about the flesh and the law and what happens there. Now, in chapter 8, 20 times in 30 verses, there's 39, but 9 of them don't mention it. 20 out of 30 verses, 20 times, he mentions the Holy Spirit. That's why my points are worded the way they are. We must be dependent upon the Spirit of God to live as children of God. So we want to see how that gets worked out in the rest of the chapter. So let's move on to point two, sanctification. By the Spirit, we have sanctification. This is found in verses 5 through 11. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the, on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So, I keep using this word sanctification. It's described there, but what is it? What is sanctification? Why do we keep using that word? Why did we sing it in one of our songs today? It is the process of being made more like Jesus. It is the process that God takes us through to become more like His Son, that He has predestined us to do, to be conformed to the image of His Son, which we'll get back to in a little while. Jesus is holy. He was perfect, right? And so we are being uh, increasingly developed into the image of Jesus of this holiness, of living more and more according to God's Spirit, who is in you as a believer. We are being more and more set apart by God for God. Romans 8 is a great example of that tension that we live in as believers, of the already not yet nature of being a Christian. That these promises are sure. You, you, you see the, the past tense language that's used there. These things are done, they're secure, and yet we're still seeing them worked out. We haven't gotten to the fulfillment yet. And thinking about that in regards to sanctification, and even in the verse in our public scripture reading, that you have been sanctified, and yet we're still seeing this worked out in our lives. To be completely honest, some of us expect too little when it comes to sanctification. It's like they think we're justified and we rest in that, but then we don't think about the fact that we've, we've also been sanctified and are being sanctified. We just leave off. With justification. And we expect too little. We expect to struggle with the same things 20 years from now that we're struggling with today. We've kind of given up, on, given up hope of growing in our obedience to God. Now I will say that some expect too much of sanctification in this life. Usually not in our circles. We tend on the other side. 
But there are some who believe that, that if you are completely dependent upon the Spirit now, you can live a sinless life for the rest of your life. And obviously we don't believe that. We don't believe that the, that the Scriptures teach that. We don't see that here. <clears throat> but the issue of both of those, thinking, expecting too little of sanctification, expecting too much of sanctification, both are usually because it's focused on ourselves, not the Spirit. We're focused on how bad we are, how little we've accomplished, how little we're growing. And so we become hopeless. We, we despair. We give up on seeing ourselves sanctified by the Spirit. On the other side, we, we're focused on what we've done right or what we haven't done wrong. And, all this, and it's all focused on me here and now. And we're not focused on the Spirit who does convict us of our sin when we're paying attention, right? You've experienced that. So... We need to have a right expectation of sanctification in our lives. Hopefully this will help with that. How are we sanctified? Verse 9 tells us that it's by the Spirit, not by the flesh. You aren't in the flesh anymore. Again, already not yet, right? We still have flesh and bone. We're still here, and our, our, our sin has, our bodies still feel the effects of our sin. But you aren't in the flesh anymore. That is no longer your identity. The phrase... <clears throat> To set your mind, or the mind that is set, has this meaning. It's not just that we're thinking about it, like we're cognitive that it's there. It's talking about the purposes. It's talking about your intentions. Where are your purposes and your intentions set? The mind that is set on the flesh, its purposes and intentions are only about gratifying its desires, which are sinful. Or things that are of here and now, just things that require our attention from day to day. We get so focused on those things that aren't necessarily sin in and of themselves, but we focus so much on them and, and how it affects us and, and what we're doing with those things that really our, our mind is set on the flesh. And it's, it's, it's us trying to be God in those situations. And so our mind is not set on the spirit, it is set on the flesh when we, when we walk that way. But we walk, Romans 8, according to the spirit by setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. Our purpose and our intentions become more and more focused on depending on God to do the work in us that He has promised to do. We see this clearly. We've, we've used this a few times at the Lord's Supper, but let's look at it again now. This is not a new idea that Paul is introducing in Romans 8. Ezekiel 36, 25-26 says this, <clears throat> I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Do you hear that? Do you hear that sanctification happening there? That, that God is at work in you to cleanse you and to remove these idols that our hearts cling to? And I will give you a new heart, 26, and, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That, that heart hardened by sin... God has taken that out in the New Covenant and given you a heart of flesh that is, that is sensitive to the Spirit's work. And then listen to 27. And I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I will put my Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in you and cause you, not just help you, cause you to be careful to obey my statutes and walk in my, walk in my statutes and obey my rules. Do you see that? And do you see how Paul is using that in Romans 8, the language there? And if you will keep 36, Ezekiel 36, 27 in mind as you read the New Testament, 
When Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, he's not saying this is a new covenant that you've never heard of. He's saying this is the new covenant that was promised long ago, being fulfilled now. That's the new covenant that we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table here in a little bit. God will put his spirit in his people and cause them to live according to his ways. This is the promise that we need. Because we do see, we, we have that experience of Romans 7, of not being able to do this. And yet God has said, I will do it. And so, sanctification really is learning to depend more and more on the Holy Spirit that is within us. His Spirit will cause. So again, we uphold the law through the Spirit. 331, right? That's how we uphold the law, is through the Spirit. And it, now, back to the, where I jumped ahead earlier. Romans 14.4 is the other place where we see this word uphold. Here's what he says there. Uh, talking about uh, judging each other uh, as servants of God. This is his answer to that. He says, it is before his own, meaning the Christian, his own master that he stands or falls. Talking about God as master. And he, God, will, no, I'm sorry. And he, the servant, us Christians, will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. How do you know you will be upheld? Because the Lord is able to make you stand. So upheld, we uphold the law, verse uh, chapter 331. We see uphold here, 14.4, that the Lord will uh, uphold us. So it's used twice in Romans. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. or Sorry, in the epistles. I didn't search the whole New Testament. In the epistles, the letters that, that the apostles wrote. That's in Hebrews 1.3. Hebrews 1.3, some of you know it. It tells us that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. This word uphold, that we uphold the law, that God upholds us, that he's able to make us stand, is the same word, it's the same idea, that Jesus himself upholds the entire universe. Why would we want to trust in ourselves? When the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power has said, I will do it. I will cause you to live according to my statutes. That is an upholding that you can count on. Getting back to Romans 8, when? When is the question, right? When will we be sanctified? Let's look at 10 and 11 again. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus, Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Being sanctified now. You are being sanctified now if you are in Christ. By the Spirit, He is giving life even now to your mortal body. Not to live for yourself, not to gratify His desires, but to live according to the Spirit. To live for Him who died for you. So, it's the already, not yet. Again, I would like to spend more time on some of these, but we'll keep moving. Let's move on to point three. Adoption. By the Spirit, we have adoption. We see this in verses 12 through 17. Let me start with 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This adoption makes us debtors. Debtors not to the flesh, to live according to its desires, but dependence on the Spirit. That really, as you, as you see that word debtor there, think of dependence. 
And also, <clears throat> you can think of obligation. Obligation. It's not a debt that we can pay off, but because we are now wed to Christ instead of the law, we've now been adopted, to use the language here, by God as His children. We now have a new family name. And I don't know how your family is, but most families have an expectation of how you act in the family, right? There is a, an expectation of how you live together as a family, but also when you're out there, how you represent us as a family. And you feel that when your kids misbehave in public, like it feels like a reflection on you, right? And so we see that. But this obligation that we have to this new family name is not one that we can do ourselves. We cannot uphold this obligation ourselves. We need the Spirit. And so the Spirit helps us. And as we live in dependence upon the Spirit, we live in a way that is consistent with our new family name. 14 and 15. Adoption as sons. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Being led by the Spirit means that you are a son of God, which means you are not given or led by a spirit of fear. You're not given a spirit of fear. You're not led by a spirit of fear. Why? Because fear has to do with punishment. Fear has to do with condemnation. We were afraid of the law when we stood in, in condemnation under the law. But we've been freed from that. We are no longer under any condemnation. And so we do not fear God's wrath anymore. Rather, we cry out to Him as His children, who are not afraid of His wrath, but who trust in His promises as a good Father. And it's promised specifically that he doesn't cast out anyone that comes to him. And so we come as sons. And you'll see a note there that says, or brothers and sisters. If you look at the little footnote by sons there. We don't want to lose the language either. There's importance in that. During this time, the firstborn son is the one who would receive the bulk of the inheritance, right? And so by leaving sons here, he's emphasizing that it's, you, you've been adopted in not just as another kid in the family. You are going to be treated as the firstborn son. We are in Christ who is the firstborn son. We've been united to him and we are fellow heirs with him as we're about to see. And so it's important to have this language of sons. That whether you're male or female, it's not a, it's not a dig at females. It's saying, look. Everybody, whether you're the third-born son or the first-born female, everyone is going to be treated as the one who gets the inheritance. We are sons of God. That doesn't erase who He's created you to be. It elevates it. And it tells you that you get the blessing of being that first-born. Which leads to the adoption as heirs in 16 and 17. 16 and 17 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, who provi provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The Spirit confirms in us that we are God's children, which makes us heirs of all that is His. I don't know how many of you have thought about being an heir. We usually think of royalty or some, you know, uber wealthy. But... Whether your parents have $2 to leave you or $2 million, you're an heir of that, right? That, that, that it is yours. That when they pass, it is yours. Or maybe it's debt. I don't know how that works. But 
it is yours, right? You inherit. That is what it means to be heirs. But in this case, the one who created and sustains all things, who, who to, to whom all things belong, he's saying that we are heirs of him. We are his heirs. What do you lack today? What are you wishing for? What are you wishing that you had? What circumstance do you want to be different? What possession do you wish that you had that you think would make your life somehow better or easier or more enjoyable? There will be a day before long, some of us sooner than others, that you will receive an inheritance that dwarfs anything that you could possibly gain, even if your dad was Bill Gates and you were going to be the heir of a billion dollars. That is going to be dwarfed by the inheritance that God has promised to his sons. Set your mind on things above, not on things below, as Paul says in Colossians 3. Now he does make this caveat. He says at the end of 17 there, provided we suffer, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that here. Paul's going to give some examples of that here at the end of the chapter. But know this. We can only suffer with Christ by the power of the Spirit within us. Whatever suffering may come, we cannot handle it in ourselves. We don't have the strength. We don't have what it takes to go through life's troubles. But God does. He knows what we need, and He will give it to us as we need it. So let's move to point four. By the Spirit, we groan. We groan. There's a few ways that we groan. And it's fitting, I think, that Paul goes from suffering that he introduces in 17, and he, he puts it in perspective in 18, and then he goes on to talk about groaning. So we're going to do the same. First, in verse 18, he puts suffering in perspective. Yes, you will suffer with Christ if you're going to be glorified with Him. But, he says, I consider that suffering, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Do you hear that? Part of how we set our minds on the Spirit in the midst of circumstances that are terrible is to remember that, that though this suffering is real, this is not Paul making light of suffering. Scripture does not make light of suffering. It doesn't bring suffering down. It brings glory up. It shows how glorious God is and how glorious the inheritance is. And even now that in Romans 5 he says suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope that doesn't put us to shame. That is glorious. And so we get a taste of that now. So it does not lower our suffering. It elevates the glory that is to be revealed. Your suffering is real. The suffering in this world is real. But it does not compare to the glory that is to be revealed. And we see this clearly in Jesus at Lazarus' tomb in, in, in John 11. He doesn't show up and make light of Lazarus' death. He doesn't say, oh, Mary, Martha, don't worry about it. I'm about to raise him from the dead. It's all okay. He doesn't. He's deeply troubled. He weeps, and then he raises from the dead. He does not make light of your suffering. But the glory that is to be revealed is so much greater than our suffering. And we must set our minds on that. That's part of what we were doing when we were singing earlier. That pain is pleasure because it's in God's service. And He's going to work all things together for our good. That is part of how we set our minds. So that is suffering in perspective. That suffering is not just our suffering, though. 
All of creation, it says, groans. We see in 19 through 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That until now means from from the time of the fall up until Paul's present day. And that means it's continued on to now as well. That groaning that creation has been feeling the pains of sin. Creation was subjected to futility because of man's sin. Again, this points back to and emphasizes the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Consider for a moment how bad it is for a man to disobey God. Just so overtly doing exactly what he was told not to do. It was so bad, sin is so bad, that creation itself was affected terribly. Was subjected by God. But God didn't do it without knowing what he would also do to redeem not just sinful man, but, be, but creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption as we see in this passage. So our redemption is not just a personal redemption. It is cosmic in scope. It is all of creation that is going to be renewed. Think for a moment. I don't know if you caught this phrase or if you've ever thought about it. We were talking about it a little bit last night as a family. But the hope mentioned in verse 20. The hope mentioned in verse 20 says, For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Who's hoping there? It's God. Can God hope? If that's the case, what is hope? We often conflate hope with wishing or wanting. We want something to happen. We, we wish for things when we blow out candles as kids on birthday cakes. We wish for good things, right? That is not the Christian hope. I could wish for a spaceship. Doesn't mean I'm going to get one, does it? At all, right? It's not going to happen. But I hope for things as a Christian. I hope for things based on reality. It is looking ahead to what I believe or what I know will happen. God knew that he, he knew what he would do. He knew how he would do it to set creation free from this subjection that he subjected it to. And so he's looking ahead to this sure event that's going to happen in the future. It hasn't happened yet. So it's in hope, but it is sure. The Christian hope that is held out for us in these promises, because of who God is, because He's demonstrated His faithfulness, our hope is not wishing or wanting this to be true. It is saying, it is true. And so I'm looking forward to these promises being fulfilled. So do you have hope, or do you wish? Do you want? Verses 23 through 24. Not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? So we, we groan, even though we have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly, but we don't groan in despair. We groan with hope. Because of what Paul said in verse 18, the glory that is to be revealed far surpasses those things that make us groan here and now. 
This is the true inner struggle of the believer. We aren't questioning like Paul did in, in verse 24 of chapter 7. Who will deliver me from this body of death? No, we're stating that we have been delivered and that we're being delivered from this body. And the groaning is anticipation of the completion of God bringing that work to completion in us. That work that He has begun. We look forward to that adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. The, the fulfillment of these promises. So we groan with hope. We also groan because of our sin. And that groaning is there is a good thing when it comes to our sin because it means we're developing a distaste for our sin, a distaste for sinning against God. A, 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 a mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not care about sin. If you groan over your sin, that is a good thing. But don't despair either. We groan with hope. So we don't stay in that sour place of groaning over our sin. We look back to the one who has adopted us and is sanctifying us. We groan with hope, not despair, because we are confident in the outcome. God finalizing that adoption and the redemption of our bodies. We know, sorry, when we know that something is sure, we can wait for it with patience. You see that a couple times in this passage, that we wait for it with patience. That word patience there can also be translated persevere. That we persevere as we wait for this event to happen. And so we set our minds again on the Spirit by remembering the promise of what it is to come for those who are in Christ. Lastly in this section, I'm going to try to speed up a little bit. We groan in prayer. Again, thinking of sanctification. Greater dependence on God, His Spirit. And we see it here in, the, in, in 26 through 29. That we need His help. We are weak. We don't even know how to pray as we ought. We need His help to pray. We need Him to help us pray with faith. To be confident in the promises of God. This is one of the reasons that we say at prayer meetings that you don't have to pray long, flowery, uh, eloquent prayers. They can be very simple. The important thing is that we are trusting the Holy Spirit to help us pray. Because we need Him in our weakness to help us pray. And then we pray with confidence to the one who can work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And all things includes even evil things. God can use, does use, makes all of those things work together for the good of those who are in Christ. And so we pray for deliverance. We pray for deliverance from suffering, but we also pray for endurance because we know what God does with that. He produces character and hope that does not put his people to shame. We also pray for the salvation of those in our lives who don't believe in Jesus yet. Praying that God would put a new heart in them, that He would put His Spirit within them, Ezekiel 36. We pray for each other to be sanctified. And we know we are praying according to God's will when we do that, because He says in several places, and specifically here in verse 29, that those who are in Christ have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That is sanctification. It's going to happen. The question is, at what rate? What rate of growth will we see? But we pray with confidence because it is God who does it. Finally, in verse 30, there we, we pray for perseverance, that Christians will make it to the end. And we pray with confidence because God gives us this golden chain in verse 30. Let me read that to us quickly. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Uh, some people call that the golden chain. Predestined, called. Justified, glorified, all past tense. 
Now, have we been glorified yet? No, he makes it clear. We're still waiting on that. But it's, it's a sure thing. It's in past tense. He will fulfill every promise, including this one. The confidence of the believer is that God will do it. So let me summarize. Verses 30 through 39, quickly. How do we know we will persevere, be glorified? Because of the high price that was paid to guarantee the outcome. He who did not spare his own son, but willingly gave him up, graciously gave him up to, uh, for our salvation. How will he not also give us all things? If he was willing to pay that price, why would he not fulfill these other promises? It doesn't make sense. He will. He will fulfill his promises because, having given his son, he will deliver on all of his promises. We persevere through every threat and circumstances. 33 through 34, no charge can stick. Why? Because we have imputed righteousness. Because Christ lived that righteous life to give us his righteousness. So when we stand before God, he sees us as righteous. Who is to condemn? How could we be condemned? God has justified us. He's given us righteousness. We do not have to fear any charge from anyone. 35 through 39, no situation or threat can prevail because we belong to the one who died to make us his own. He defeated sin and death. What else is more powerful than that? We are more than conquerors in Christ, not in our flesh. Verse 36 there may be offset in your Bible a little bit. That's a quote from a psalm. And that, that quote there is showing. Because it, it could sound very triumphant, right? What Paul is saying up, to, up through 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing, right? Danger, sword, it's all hypothetical. But then he gets to 36 and he says, As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. There may be times where you feel like God has abandoned you. As those who wrote this psalm felt. They asked, where are you God? In that psalm. What's happening? What's going on here? But even here, even in death, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And because nothing can separate us from that love, we know that even in death, even when it's that real, it is our deliverance because God has defeated sin and death. So to be absent from the body is to be present with our Lord, and he will raise us up again on that last day. So let me ask you one more time. Are you in Christ today? Does the spirit of the living God dwell inside of you? Then walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. If not, ask God to fulfill this promise in your life. If that is you, please see one of the pastors afterwards. If, if, if you've heard this chapter preached and, and you think, man, I need to know more about that, please see myself or Pastor Adam after the service or, or someone else who is here that can help you see the gospel more clearly. A couple quick takeaways. Trust in God, not in yourself. I know it's obvious, but we've got to be reminded of that because we keep going back and trying to trust in our own wisdom, our own strength. We forget to rely on Christ, on the Holy Spirit. Second, set your minds, your purposes, your intentions to become more dependent upon the Holy Spirit. That starts with asking God to do that in you by His Spirit. Ask Him to cause you to be careful to obey. Ask Him to cause you to be more and more dependent upon His Spirit. Ask Him every day, every hour, every minute to help, to cause you to live according to His Spirit. And that looks a lot like praying without ceasing. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament commands still function as the law that sin would use to tempt us and condemn us. We fail to live up to these commands regularly. 
like the command to pray without ceasing. How many of you are like, yeah, I nailed on that one this week. I prayed without ceasing. We, we struggle. We struggle. But often, it's because we're trying to obey those commands in the flesh still. In the Spirit, we will increasingly fulfill those commands as well. Because He will cause us to do it. And so, the big thing here is to ask God to do it in you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15-24 is helpful in this. That's where pray without ceasing is listed. It also says rejoice always, give thanks in everything, do not quench the spirit. Rejoice always. God has made promises to his people that are worth rejoicing. That we would be delivered from our sin. That we would be sanctified by the power of the spirit. That is worth rejoicing over. Then we should pray and be dependent upon the spirit because the promise says he will do it. And then to give thanks always because, because he's doing it. We need to see where God is at work in our lives. We need to see the evidence of grace, of His Spirit sanctifying us. And that's one of the things that we pray on Sunday nights. And that's times of thanksgiving. We want to thank God for the ways that He's at work among us. Because He is. He's promised to do so. And when we ignore that, we're acting like He's not doing what He said He would do. And that quenches the Holy Spirit. I really think that if you've wondered what, what does it mean, not to, what does it mean to, to quench the Holy Spirit... It's to not rejoice. It's to not pray. It's not to give thanks. Because God's Spirit is at work in you to cause you to live according to His Word. Joyful dependence on Him, recognizing the work that He is doing in your life and asking for more. Will you pray with me?